Exodus chapter 16. As you get there, um, I want to say uh, to all the moms a really happy Mother's Day. We're really thrilled that you're choosing to spend a portion of Mother's Day with us. We want to celebrate you. I I was thinking at the beginning of the story of Exodus, there is uh, a story about mothers that's, that's really fascinating because without the mothers, a variety of different kinds of mothers showing up in the story of Moses, Uh, we wouldn't have the book of Exodus. It would be a totally different story that would have been written in a different way. And so I'm not going to go back and do the whole story with you, but I just want to recount for you. In Exodus chapter 2, we first have Moses' mom. So if you remember the story, uh, the the nation of Egypt uh, has put this edict out to the Israelite people that any baby boy that is born must be killed. And Moses' mom, in uh, courage and strength, steps forward, saves Moses' life, and, and, and raises him uh, in her home, putting her and her family at risk, taking the step of courage. But then as Moses got too old, uh, she has to kind of hand him over. And so she makes a basket and puts him in the river. And his older sister becomes kind of like a spiritual mom to him. Uh, she walks alongside the river and outside of the care of his uh, biological mom, she offered oversight and uh, direction and was able to kind of be there. So when he was discovered by the next mom in the story, who is an adoptive mom, uh, Pharaoh's daughter adopts Moses and brings him into her home and becomes part of the story. So we have a biological mom, a spiritual mom, and an adoptive mom who are all part of this story that we're looking at. And so uh, wherever you fit in that story, if you are one of those kinds of moms, uh, we, we celebrate you and we're thankful for you. And I know there's many Many of you who, for various regions at various stages, are stepping into different of those roles, and uh, and we're grateful for you, and so we're grateful to be able to celebrate with you. So this series is called Beginning the Building the People of God, and it's all about the way that God uh, not just delivers his people, but begins to shape and mold his people for his purposes as uh, they are, are sent out into the world. And so uh, in this process, I just want to uh, do a, a quick uh, recap. So where, where we were last week is the people of God coming out from uh, the Red Sea, and as they came out from the Red Sea, uh, we, we saw one of the principles that we're talking about in, uh, as kind of we, we look at this, uh, this story, and one of the principles is this. God's not just interested in our deliverance, but he's interested in our development. So the people of God were delivered by, uh, by God through Moses, but as they escaped, they didn't come immediately into the promised land. They went into the desert. As many of us find on the other side of salvation, these challenging seasons where we're uh, wrestling in the desert, that's where the Israelite people found themselves, and that became shaping. Uh, in fact, we very specifically saw the character of God named at the end of that passage, at the end of, uh, of Exodus chapter 15, where God declared himself to be healer. And it's fascinating because uh, although we certainly are invited to pray for individual healing, uh, bodily and physical healing, the first way that God represented himself as healer was by healing water and doing that at a corporate level, healing a community that that healed community could be a healing presence in the world around them. And um, while I don't have a lot of specifics because those things are really hard to measure, I just want to say to you, I see God doing that in us. It's really fascinating to watch the way that God is 
healing and shaping and making us a community of healed people. Uh, if you weren't with us on Wednesday, we had first Wednesday this past week and we're praying together and there was just, uh, there, it wasn't that there was anything really profound or these like, you know, fire from heaven kind of stories, but there was a sense of the presence of God working among his people. And he's doing that in such a way that we have the opportunity to reflect him in the world around us. And so I want to encourage you, I think it's important for us, even when we can't put an exact finger on it, to say it out loud, like God's doing this. God is doing this work. And so I want to encourage you along the way. He is working. He's working in us corporately, and he continues to work in us individually as, as he heals us, as he shapes us and uh, prepares us to be his people. The other couple phrases that we've said over and over again that are part of this, uh, this framework that we've looked at the book of Exodus in is that this story is our story. Um, when God works in this historical people at a place and time, he's doing that in such a way that uh, we see his character, we see his work, so that we can identify those same things that are happening in our lives individually. So we see the story of deliverance and the story of development and shaping the desert playing out in our lives as well. And so uh, this is given to us not just so that we would know the history, but so that we would see and be able to mark the way that God's working in our lives. And the final thing that we're going to talk about a little bit more today is this idea that God is making all things new, but he's not making all new things. That most of the time, God works in process. He, he doesn't just immediately change it, even though we would love him to do that. He doesn't bring us through the Red Sea to the promised land. He brings us through a process, and that process shapes and forms and uh, is part of the way that, that God uh, hones us into his people. Um, it's, it's kind of like the desert, the wilderness, is a, a place that God conspires to form us, kind of like finishing school for Christians. Like it's like we come out on the other side into the desert and we, we need to be shaped. But that shaping isn't just a, um, a, a point in time uh, we're called forward to be delivered and then we wait um, that's one of the things that I think is important for us to state within the American church because that aspect of the gospel, which is part of the gospel, is, is often overstated that God uh, comes in to save us. He certainly does do that. But after he does that work of salvation, he also forms us. Uh, Jesus says this really provocative thing in Luke chapter 6. He's talking about what it looks like to be an apprentice, somebody who follows after him. And he says, an apprentice, when fully trained, will be like his master. So Jesus, talking to the people around him who are contemplating following him, he, he says to them, you, you should aspire to be just like me. As your master, you should be like me. And in the very same way as we set out to pursue after Jesus, we shouldn't be satisfied simply waiting. We should be pursuing Christ-likeness. And he uses the desert to shape us into that. And so today we're going to look at, um, uh, maybe apart from the Red Sea, the most famous portion of the Exodus story, one that gets told over and over again throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, a story that God has used, again, as our story, one that uh, has lots of overtones to us. And so we're going to look at a, an extended passage of Scripture. This is a little bit longer than you're used to hearing, but I want you to hear the whole thing. We're not going to have time to cover all of it, but uh, the Holy Spirit in his ability can uh, speak that into your life wherever you're at, and so I want you to hear the whole thing. So we're going to look at all of Exodus 16 and the first half of Exodus 17. And as we listen, I, I, want, I want to ask you to listen the way that you listen best. 
And so if that means following along in the scriptures, I want to encourage you to follow along in the scriptures. If it means closing your eyes and imagining the story unfolding in front of you, do that. Um, If it's uh, looking and listening and engaging visually, do that. If it's playing games on your phone, don't do that. That's not the way you listen the best. I promise you, that's not the way you listen the best. Uh, but I want to encourage you to listen, to, uh, to put yourself in the story. Um, and as your mind wanders, which it probably will, just pull it back and, uh, and, and engage the story. And so Paul is going to read for us Exodus 16 and the first half of Exodus 17. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? for they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little, and when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much. And he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, 
Some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. I hope that helps. <laughs> The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not?
Thank you, Paul. Would you pray with me as we look at the word? Jesus, would you take this long passage with so much in it, and would you speak it by your spirit into our lives as individuals? We need to hear from you, and so God, I pray by your spirit at work in us that we would hear what you're speaking to us. And so God, I believe that you have a really clear message for us this morning, and so I ask that you would speak it. God, um, I submit my capacities to you. Would you uh, use whatever I have to be able to speak this truth? May my words that come from my strength fall to the ground and be forgotten, but may your words that come from your spirit, may they land on us. May they change us. God, do your work of renewal and development in our lives. Invite us in again today, I pray. And so God, speak. Your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So obviously, this is a huge story. There's a ton in there, uh, more than we're going to have time to get to this morning, so this is probably a good time uh, to remind those of you who don't know. um, I do a daily devotional podcast Monday through Thursday, and often that's following up on pieces of the passage that I haven't had time to hit on Sunday morning, and this week that certainly will be the case. And so uh, we're going to hit four other aspects of that passage this week in little 10-minute chunks. And so if you uh, are are interested in some of the pieces that we're not going to hit this morning, Uh, those will be hit there. What I want to do is I want to zero in very specifically on a theme that I believe the Lord has for us this morning. So we're going to first start with the idea of a test. God says he's going to test the people. And so uh, what does that test look like? And we're going to look at the model, almost like the grading rubric that he's using uh, to to look at that test and to grade that test. And then we're going to look at another kind of test, the test that shows up in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, And those of you college students who are in the middle of finals right now, and I just gave you PTSD, I'm so sorry. Um, Don't worry, it's fine. This is a different kind of test. It's okay. It's going to be fine. And so uh, that's what we're going to dive into. Uh, So the test, the model, and then another test. And so uh, the, the story starts, remember they came out of Elim at the end of chapter 15. Uh, they're in this place of dwelling where they are uh, at, at a place with 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and it looks like paradise. Some of you are picturing like hammocks strung between the trees and just kind of sitting and relaxing with a drink, you know, uh, the water from the spring, whatever it was. Yeah, you're just hanging, right? You're just enjoying it. That, that's what you're supposed to picture. That's exactly what is intended at the end of Exodus chapter 15. But like we said last week, that was only temporary. That was only to be for a moment. And now... God leads them out. God is taking them from there onto a different place. And as they're going, uh, scholars differ, but they think it was maybe somewhere between 30 and 45 days since Elim. Uh, They probably used up all the food that they had brought with them, and they were kind of on scraps. They're looking around trying to salvage stuff. There's nothing there. And they finally start to complain. And we have this ironic beginning to the story. In verse 3, they they say this, um, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, When we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out to this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's a fascinating picture 
Because what's happening here is the people are like, um, I, I know, God, that you did this stuff, you know, these plagues and things, and then you let us out, and you parted the Red Sea, and you brought the water that was bitter, and you made it sweet, and then you took us to this wonderful place, and now you're leading us forward. I know you did all that stuff, but I wish if you were going to kill us, you just would have done it back in Egypt when we had the good life. Like, I remember back in Egypt, it was so wonderful back then. Uh, we used to, like, sit around pots of meat and just, like, eat and, like, twirl the forks on our fingers as we stuck them into the pots to get more meat, uh, totally forgetting the fact that actually what happened was that you were oppressed and you were being forced to, uh, like forced labor, uh, work under Pharaoh. I doubt there were pots of meat anywhere. They're just like, they're making this stuff up in their head. They're romanticizing this past oppression in the midst of trying to, to follow after God. And they're saying like, this is terrible. This thing that you're leading me into, it's awful. I remember back there, before you delivered us, life used to be really good, which a lot of us are really good at romanticizing that. You ever notice that? Like there's this, uh, the way that we tell stories about our time before we encountered Jesus, we very rarely tell them realistically. We tell them with all of the fun stuff and all this stuff. I remember back then, I remember the way that all these things happen. It's part of the nature of who we are. And, and, and we tend to romanticize even oppression, even really bad relationships and really bad situations. We tend to look at them when they're far in the past through this lens of uh, r- romanticizing them. And that's what happened to, to Egypt. And, and so there's this fascinating response by God um, it, in the, the version that Paul read, it was really great because the Lord says, I will rain down. And if I was going to do that to the grumbling people, I would be raining down something. But it would, like, I, if, I, if I had the power of God, I've done all this for the people, they're grumbling and complaining and awful, I would rain down all right. But it would not be blessing. It would not be bread, fresh bread. But he says, I'm going to rain down fresh bread for you. I'm going to rain down what you need in order to survive. But he doesn't just say it that he's going to do it. Um, At the second half of verse four, he says this, um, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven for you. The people of God shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my ways or not. What's the test? What is it that God's doing to the people of Israel, what's he seeking to figure out about them? Well, I think we've already seen the challenge, right? They're they're reverting in their mind to the beauty of Egypt, to um, this romanticized version of Egypt. And what we find is something that we said uh, back in the fall, that God is able in a moment to bring the people out of Egypt. God is able in a moment to bring us out of slavery. But it takes a long time for Egypt to come out of the people. It takes a long time for slavery to come out of us. What's God testing? Well, he's testing them to see if they're able to receive blessing from his hand. Are they able to receive the gift that he has for them? Because remember, in Egypt, they would have gotten food through anxiety. Are we going to have enough? Are we going to be given what we need? through oppression, uh, even oppressing one another, kind of elbowing out of the way. I get this, you don't get this. There's only a little bit, and we need to make, I need to make sure that I get mine and my family gets theirs. Even through deceit, 
through a, a, a longing for, and then once you got it, hoarding, right? Like they would try to get as much as they could because you never know when the next meal is coming. That's the way they gained food in Egypt. Are they going to live that way? Will they, will they receive blessing from the hand of God or will they receive blessing on their terms? Same thing's true for us. Like, are, are we willing to gain life from God on his terms, or do we want to gain life on our terms? How do we gain life? Well, apart from God, we gain life like the world around us does. We gain life through amassing more stuff. We gain life through manipulation of other people so that we would look good. We gain life through positioning ourselves in a certain way so we would get more because there's only so much and we need to make sure we get our share. In the same way that they hoarded, we hoard. That we, we try to get more and more so that we feel like we have enough. Are we in a position, as we seek after God as a people, are we in a position when God tests us that we can be blessed on his terms? That we are in a position where we'll receive that blessing under the kingdom conditions. What are those kingdom conditions? That's what we're going to find. Uh, and without going through all the details, let me just summarize. Uh, there's a model that God gives to us of the conditions that we need to have in order to receive. The first one is really simple. Gather only enough for today. So God says, I'm going to rain down bread. There's going to be all this stuff. It's going to be all over the ground. And I want you to go out and just get enough for today. Now, this is completely counterintuitive to the people of Israel because remember, this is an agrarian society, a farming society. So when the harvest comes in, picture yourself, if you don't have any background, just kind of picture what you know about farms. Uh, when the harvest comes in, how much sense does it make for you to go out and just gather enough for dinner? Right? Like it's, 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 quite, it's relaxing when the harvest comes in. We just get enough for dinner and then we just go on. No, like when the harvest comes in, you get it all, right? You get as much as you can. So it can be stored up and it can be, be ready, but God doesn't do it that way. He says, just get enough for today. Uh, Tim Keller, the pastor from uh, New York City, uh, when he was commenting on this passage, I thought it was a fascinating idea. He says, why is it that God didn't complete the miracle? Like he's giving food every day and they have to go out and get the food. Why doesn't he just go all the way? Like, they're going to be doing this every day for 40 years. Why didn't he just, like, make them not hungry? Or, or maybe even better, like, take the food and put it directly into their stomach. So, you know, they wake up in the morning, they're like, oh, I'm so hungry. Oh, never mind. I feel better. Like, oh, that's great. Yeah, thanks. That's, that's good. You know, like, why, why didn't God go all the way? Why didn't he uh, do the miracle in a complete way? And Keller's sense, and I agree with him, is that um, th there's something in that act of going out and getting it that God was teaching his people. Remember, this is coming on the other side of the Red Sea, where the promises of God are suddenly, if you will, then I will. God is inviting us into the work of formation, not just freeing us, but forming us which requires effort. And what he's saying is, uh, there's enough for you to go out and get, and every day I want you to go and get more of the fresh bread. I'm going to go out and receive what I have given to you. And you can't store it up. You can't get enough for tomorrow. Remember if, uh, when they did, uh, they had all of this, this manna, 
And um, by the next day, it had maggots in it, which I know is a really happy thought on uh, Happy Mother's Day to everybody, Ooh, right? Like, you just like picture like, uh, never mind. It's not, yeah, it's not, it's not pleasant, right? It's just this awful thing. Like, why, what, what's the deal? Well, what he's saying is, when, when you are unwilling to operate on my terms, that, that's what happens. You try to store it up, but it's not going to feed you the, the next day. So, so let me say it more, more practically. I, I hope that when you gather together with the people of God, there's a, a filling that comes from it. That's the intention of, of a corporate gathering is that we would receive and that we would be filled up and it would be a, a good manna day for us. But by Tuesday, you can't eat that anymore. Like it's, it, it doesn't sustain you. And so if you're eating Sunday to Sunday to Sunday, but you're not eating in between, you will ultimately be malnourished. And in the same way, God's saying, every day I want you to go out and get it. I'm not just putting it into your stomach. I want you to go out and get it. I want you to go and receive what I have for you. And he says you can't store food for one very specific reason. You know who stores food in this story? You have to go all the way back, so I don't expect that you would remember it because it's been a little while. But back in September going into October, we talked about Exodus chapter 1. And in Exodus chapter 1, the people of Israel are enslaved to do specific work, namely to build the store cities of Pharaoh. So what the Israelites, what was like steeped into their culture is Egypt, this successful oppressor, stores up food. They're building the storehouses, quite literally. And God says, you're not doing that. Instead, you get what I have for you every day because I'm a God of abundance. I'm a God who always has for you. Like in a contemporary way, uh, maybe you remember Mother's Day 2020. Like, I don't know what you got your mother for Mother's Day, uh, Mother's Day 2020, but what she wanted was an eight-pack of Charmin. Do you remember that? Right? Like, that's what, every, that's what everybody wanted. Like, just give me, give me some toilet paper and a couple Clorox wipes, and I'm good. Like, I got everything I need, right? And, and, and you couldn't find it, not because, fascinatingly, not because there wasn't enough, but because there were these pictures that would show up online of people, like, they open their garage door, and the entire garage is full of toilet paper. Like, they have stored all of it. Like, it's all there. And I'm not sure what they thought they were going to eat but it was not going to be good. Like, 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 what do you do? Like, they're still probably pulling from that because you never heard of stories of people like, like filling their garage so they could go be a blessing to their neighbors. There was very few of that. It was just like, I, I need all the toilet paper because you never know what might, ha- like, what might happen. Oh my goodness, when you need that much. Anyway, and, and so, so there was this, this idea, right, of, of hoarding, of trying to get as much because there was a scarcity mindset. There was a sense of like, there might not be enough. So therefore, I need to get more so that I have enough. God's saying to the people of Israel, you will not be that kind of people. I have enough for you. I will have enough for you. I am enough for you. They needed to learn that the bread of life, interestingly, the term that Jesus called himself in John chapter 6, the bread of life was what they truly needed. So the first part of the model is you only gather enough for today. The second part of the model actually breaks the first part of the model. So the the second part of the model is on the sixth day, you gather twice as much as you need because on the seventh day, you won't gather anything because it's Sabbath. 
Now that's interesting because remember back in the fall I told you Exodus fits as volume two in a five-volume story that they would have understood to all flow together. So the book of Genesis is referred to multiple times through the book of Exodus. And if you're following along, what you would find is Sabbath all of a sudden is spoken of here in Exodus chapter 16 for the first time since Genesis chapter 2. It's all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 that we find out God worked for six days in creating the world, and then he rested as a Sabbath, as, a, as, a, as a, he ceased to work. Literally, that word Shabbat in, uh, in Hebrew literally means to cease. He ceased work so that he would, he would rest as a model. And it's never mentioned again throughout Genesis, throughout this point in Exodus, never mentioned again. But now, the process has begun, and it would become part of the Ten Commandments. It would be part of the way that the people of Israel are known. They're to gather extra so that they could receive the gift of rest. We're going to unpack that more today. We're going to have a, a practice series in June where we're going to uh, really kind of work through that in a, a much longer way, so I'm going to save that for them. But I want you to stick your finger in Exodus chapter 16 and turn just a couple books forward to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, if you just kind of flip towards the back uh, a bit, Deuteronomy chapter 8. I just want to read one verse for you. This is Moses looking back at the end of 40 years of journey, and he's looking back at this story, uh, at what's happening then. And I I want you to to, uh, listen to the way that he uh, kind of summarizes this. So this is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Moses says this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Testing you to know what was in your heart. What did he find as God tested the nation of Israel? Well, he found Egypt. He found Egypt still in their hearts. That's why they went out and gathered extra, and that's why it turned into maggots. That's why on the seventh day, some of them went out to gather anyway and couldn't find any food, because Egypt was still in their hearts. There was still this sense of, I need to provide for myself. I need to step into this. I need to to make sure that I'm getting it. And instead, what God's wanting to do in them and will ultimately do in them is use the wilderness to purify them to uh, strain Egypt, if you will, out of their hearts. God uses the wilderness to teach us to obey him because all of us, wherever you are in your journey, all of us still find Egypt in our hearts. We, we, we still find little pieces. And so some of you may, may come here and you're like, I, I have been on that fresh bread thing for years, like every day I'm spending time with the Lord and I'm, I'm seeking to get what he has for me and I'm not storing up because I'm, tomorrow I'm going to be back in the word again. And that's, and that's wonderful. But see, what you find in the middle of that is you still have these parts of your heart that you know shouldn't be there. Like I, I'm pursuing after God, and I'm tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and it's wonderful and I'm experiencing all of this. And the, why did that thought just come into my head? Why do I want to hoard? Why do I find myself not living in full trust of what God has for me? Why do I find myself storing up things? Why do I find myself seeing, whether it's finances or time or relationships, as finite and scarce rather than abundant? Why why do I find Egypt in me? 
And some of you are on the other side and you're saying, like, I, I'm unabashedly in Egypt. Like, I, I'm not even trying to follow after this thing because it doesn't even make any sense to me. Um, it's been, uh, been years or months or weeks since fresh bread has been on my mind. Um, I'm, just, I, I'm just trying to figure it out. And I feel like I'm gaining life in my own way. On one side or the other and everywhere in between, we find ourselves asking the right question, which is, what do I do with Egypt in my heart? When God tests us and finds that Egypt is in there, which is all of us to some degree, what happens? Well, the story is going to continue on into Exodus chapter 17 in a way that's fascinating. So um, they have now been receiving manna every morning, receiving quail every night. And they're wandering and they're following after God. And as they get in uh, Exodus chapter 17 to Rephidim, they now don't have, they have, they have bread and they have quail, but they don't have any water. Again, back to the water thing again, right? Like they, and, and so they begin to cry out to God. And as they cry out to God, it's phrased in a fascinating way. So um, in verse 2, it says, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So in Exodus chapter 16, the Lord is testing them. But in Exodus chapter 17, the people are testing God. What happens when the people test God? Well, again, um, I would probably do it a very different way than God did, right? Um, the, the way that I would respond to these ungrateful people is a certain way. But God, uh, as Moses cries out to him, God says, okay, Moses, I want you to take the staff that you used to part the Red Sea. And I want you to stand in between. And on one side, I want you to lay out the elders of Egypt, uh, or of Israel, those who are uh, representing the total of the people of Israel. They're going to be on one side. And I'm going to be on the other side. And, and he, he talks about this rock at Horeb. And, and depending on your translation, it might say, I will stand by the rock. But literally, the, the Hebrew says, I will stand on the rock. And Moses is in between. What God is setting up is like a courtroom scene. It's a trial. And on one side, you have the plaintiff who is testing God. He, he has not been faithful. He has not done what he's supposed to do. We need water, and he hasn't done it. And on the other side... You have God, who has provided a way through the Red Sea, who's conquered the army, who's given them uh, water, who's given them bread. And, and in between, you have Moses with his staff. And what should happen is Moses, with his staff, should indict as guilty the faithless people of Israel. The ground should be struck, and God should swallow them up. That's what should happen. That would be justice. God has done all of this for these people, and they're still not getting it. And so what you expect is a fair trial, is that these people are clearly guilty. If you're just reading the story, these people are the guilty ones. But what happens? God says to Moses, take your staff and strike the rock that I'm standing on. Put the punishment on me. And as he does, the rock splits open and fresh water comes out to give them again what they need. Why is that important? 
For many of us, we find ourselves with Egypt inside of us. And after we've been through the cycle enough times, we think, this is it. This is as far as I can go. Like, I can't do any better than this. And God still invites us back in, in mercy. Not in the justice that we deserve, but in mercy. The rock is struck because Jesus himself, as the rock, is struck on behalf of the people. When the sin that was ours should be indicting us, Jesus bears our sin so that we can have life. Once and again and again. It's fascinating because if you continue to read the story, we'll look at this uh, in a couple months. Uh, they again get to a place where they want water and again are grumbling before the Lord. And God says to Moses, not strike the rock, but speak to the rock because the rock has already been struck. The source of life has already been opened. I'll leave the rest of the story for when we get there. But the moral for us today, the way for us to grab hold of this is just to recognize that God, even in the midst of their grumbling, gives them what they need. Even in the midst of their disobedience, even in the midst of finding Egypt in their heart, gives them what they need. If you take this story that we've looked at today and last week's story, you see the story of grumbling. Old Testament scholar Pete Enns, as he's commenting on the kind of the totality of it in his commentary, uh, he, he makes this statement, I'll just paraphrase, but he makes a statement, if you read this story and what you get out of it is that we shouldn't grumble, you've missed the riches of what God gives to us in the desert. It's true that we shouldn't grumble, but that's not the point. What's God trying to tell us with this story? Well, a couple things. One that I think we need to get is that we are needy people. We need something from him. God's created us finite. We're humans. And because of our humanity, when you, when you turn on the faucet and water comes out, that's a reminder to you not that you've supplied yourself water, but that you'll die without it. God's created you in a way that's finite. When you open the cabinet or you open the refrigerator and you get food, that's not a reminder that you've provided food for yourself, but it's a reminder that you need food to live. God's created you dependent. And so even though we in our modern Western world tend to be able to meet our needs, the needs themselves, the need to go to sleep and to be refreshed, the need to uh, gain health out of sickness, the need for community and connection, and the need for food and drink, they're all reminders to us that we are finite people serving an infinite God. We have needs. And our needs, our finiteness, should remind us of our need for God. But it also shows us that when we are tested, we might be out of Egypt, but Egypt's still in us. That if we're totally honest, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, you're still finding Egypt in you, in bits and pieces, or in big, wide swaths. Egypt's still in us. And in the midst of that, we're invited back in every time. In the midst of our disobedience, when we deserve judgment, when we know better, we're invited back in. And that's the final thing that we're supposed to hear. Jesus is what we need. We can't do this ourselves. We can't grumble less and be good before God. We can't be obedient enough and be good before God. In the end, we will stand on one side and God will stand on the other and we will deserve the punishment 
but for those who are in Christ, he receives the punishment for us. So it's a reminder to us, wherever you're at in your journey, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, that you're invited back in, that you're invited in the midst of your disobedience to respond. And so as we take some time to listen to the Spirit and to respond in our own hearts, I just want to give you a couple moments of silence to listen to the voice of the Spirit. I'm going to ask the worship team if you guys would come and prepare to lead us. And um, in all the stuff that God is saying in the midst of this passage, the things that we've hit and many other pieces, I, I just want to ask the Spirit to speak to you individually what you need to hear, what we need to hear as his people. And so would you just kind of settle your hearts where you are, just kind of push your Bible off to one side and put all of your stuff away and just close your eyes and just take a minute. Maybe take a really deep breath, just breathe all the way in and breathe all the way out. And then just ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and speak? Help me to hear, help us to hear what we need to hear from you. Jesus, I thank you that you have received in yourself the punishment that was due to us. That you've made a way that is open through your broken body and your shed blood that we would be able to come to you, come back to you over and over and over again. And so God, we want to come and receive the bread of life that you have given to us. In Ephesians chapter 5, there's a declaration by Paul that we would not be drunk on wine, which causes debauchery, but instead to be filled with the Spirit. And that's an, an ongoing need. Without going into all of the details of the language, Paul's saying, don't stop being filled with the Spirit. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. And just like this manna story, it's a it's a daily, moment-by-moment moment invitation that we would receive from him. We'd be controlled by him, animated by him. And so whether that's for the first time or whether that's for the hundredth or thousandth time, we have a need to receive from him. So I'm going to ask... Um, that you would remain prayerful, but if you would stand where you are instead of sitting. So I'm just going to ask you to go ahead and stand up. And you can, as you stand, just after you're up, keep your eyes closed and um, stay prayerful before the Lord. I'm just going to ask you, um, if you're in the position here that you, you've come and 
whether you have been seeking to follow God day after day after day or whether you found yourself uh, going weeks without meals. If you're coming and you're saying, God, I, I long for you to fill me with your spirit, I'm just going to ask you to put your hands out in front of you. So that's going to be that act of movement. That's going to be uh, you saying, uh, I'm going to go get the manna. I'm just going to ask you to put your hands out in front of you. And as you do, I just want to pray that God would fill us. God's desire is uh, not to fill those who are unwilling to be filled. But if we take that active step and we just say, God, fill me up, he, he will do that. And so as you put your hand out in front of you, I just want to pray over us that we would receive the filling of the Spirit that God promises to us. So Jesus, by an act of simply opening our hands, we're asking you, would you fill us with your Spirit? Would you come even right now by your Holy Spirit and would you pour your heart into our hearts, our, our spirits that they would fill up with your Spirit? so that you would overflow out of us through the rest of the day today and tomorrow as we position ourselves again, that you would fill us again. And God, that this would be a marker for us, that we would be filled day after day after day, receiving fresh bread from you. And so God, come and fill, I pray. As my brothers and sisters hold out their hands, would you just pour out your spirit so that we would receive from you what you lovingly give to us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.